we will be uh, working our way through John chapter 6 from verse 34 through to verse 51. So John chapter 6, verse 34 to 51. Uh, We finished at verse 33 last week. Just a reminder, that's where we saw Jesus talking about what is required for people to truly come to him. And he finished that section in verse 33 by saying, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And now we enter into their response and then Jesus leading into the how of people truly coming to him. We've got the what, and now he's going to detail the how. So let's read through this, and then we'll work our way through the passage. So starting from verse 34, after the response of Jesus saying, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. From verse 34, this is God's word. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is God's word. So a reminder from our passage last week, we looked at the inner workings of what is required for someone to truly come to him. And we looked at three particular things. You must deny yourself. So in the Uh, people, the crowd coming to Jesus, we see this self-preservation. They are trying to cling to their lives. They believe there's something within themselves that they can do to achieve this life. Jesus is very clearly saying there's nothing you can do. The only work you can do is to believe in me. Implicit in that is that there is nothing within your life that is worthy of this. There's nothing within your life that is able to come to the Lord. So what is required? You must deny yourself. You must then, secondly, trust in the Son, namely you must trust in the reasons for why the Father has sent the Son 
to be the substitutionary sacrifice for us, to deal with this issue of sin within us. The Father did not send the Son to be a useful resource to give us a better life now. He sent the Son because our life was worthless and stained and corrupted, and so He sent the Son to be the sacrifice so that we might have new life in Him. And then thirdly, we must treasure the Son. So we must deny ourselves, we must trust in the Son, and then we must treasure the Son. Genuine discipleship following Jesus Christ is where you treasure the Son, where you hold Christ to be more important than anything else in this world. Deny yourself, trust in the Son, treasure the Son. Now, from verse 34 and 35 onwards, Jesus is giving the inner workings of how this all comes about. How does this happen? And we get like a sneak peek, a behind the scenes, so to speak, into the how of salvation, the inner workings of salvation. Remember the context. The context here is that Jesus still has this crowd following him and the crowd appeared to be seeking him. We could say there's a genuine seeking going on from the crowd. They're willing to travel across the sea to come to him, but Jesus knows that their motives for coming to him are not right. They're not good motives. Hence why he says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He knows that it is not mixed by faith. He knows that they are not coming to him because they are trusting in him as the son. That's why he says, you don't believe in me. You don't believe that I am who I say I am. You're just coming to me because you've seen me do some interesting things. You've seen me as a means to an end, someone who could provide resources for you. And we see from our passage, beginning at verse 34, that this issue is still there. They are still seeing Jesus as a means to an end because in verse 34, they say in response to Jesus saying, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say, sir, give us this bread always. Now, the language of that is insinuating that they still think that there is a physical bread that this guy can continuously give them. Give us this bread always. Give us this physical bread always. Great. We don't need to go to a baker if there were bakers back then. We don't need to make it ourselves. Just go to this guy and he'll give us this ongoing supply of bread. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point. They are still looking to him as a means to an end. And so the natural question is, and you might have this now, the natural question is, how does someone truly come to Jesus? How does it happen? These people have seen Jesus. They're coming to him. But Jesus is saying, you're not doing it the right way. You're not. So how does this happen? How does someone truly come to Jesus? How do people not come with ulterior motives to Jesus, particularly given that we are riddled by sin and selfishness? So how do we truly come to him in the right way? And here in our passage, we get the behind the scenes look of how someone truly comes to Jesus. This is Jesus explaining from God's perspective how someone is truly going to come to him. And we're going to see this in five aspects of the inner workings of salvation today. So firstly, we will see the sovereignty of God in salvation. Sovereignty, which is to say he is in control, totally in control. We see the sovereignty of God in salvation. We then see the assurance of God in salvation, namely the assurance we can have because he is sovereign over salvation. 
we then see the wisdom and power of God in salvation, in terms of the wisdom and power seen in the way by which he brings about salvation. We see the nearness of God in salvation, and then we see the satisfaction of God in salvation when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger nor thirst again. So sovereignty, assurance, wisdom and power, nearness and satisfaction. Let's firstly look at the sovereignty of God in salvation. This is in our first three verses here, mostly in verses 37 uh, to 39, rather, sorry, from verses 37 to 39. So let me read this out. Jesus says after this encounter with uh, restating from verse 35 that he is the bread of life, Um, And he says that they, the crowd, they don't believe in him. Then he begins explaining the how. This is how someone truly comes to him. He says from verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So just in case there is any confusion about how to know who has truly come to Jesus, Jesus puts this all to bed and says, Everyone that the Father gives to me will come, guaranteed, totally guaranteed. Anyone whom the Father gives to me is going to come to me. I know it. This is a little insight into what some theologians like to call the covenant of redemption, this this pact that the Father had with the Son before the foundation of the world, that there would be a people whom He would save, that He would guarantee. He would not leave it totally up to sinful humanity to choose Him because He knows that no one will ever choose Him. So He guaranteed that there would be those whom He would redeem and He would bring to salvation. We see here the Father has ordained that a people would be given to the Son. The Father takes a people, a sinful people, and He ordains that they would be given to the Son as a bit of a love gift so that the Son may cleanse them and wash them and make them new as a cherished gift from the Father. The the way that that comes about is, of course, through the death and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus is saying, those who truly come to me are those whom the Father has given me. They are those whom had been planned before the foundation of the world to be given to me to experience this cleansing, securing work of redemption. And Jesus makes this sovereign work of the Father even more clear when we look at verse 44. If we just skip ahead, look at verse 44. This is after the the crowd grumbles. And then in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is impossible for a dead sinner to come to the light of Jesus Christ unless something supernatural happens. This is a sovereign work of God. Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And this word for draw is a very active word. It's not like a wooing. It's not like God kind of enticing someone like you might to a child or something with some candy. It's not like that. It's a very active word. So the word is used elsewhere and a very fair translation could be drag. In fact, it's a more appropriate translation is drag. No one can come to me unless the father drags them. The word is used in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas 
are dragged by the angry mob before the rulers. Now, the mob didn't woo them, come before the rulers to face judgment. They just dragged them. The word is also used when the disciples drag a haul of fish onto the shore, masses of fish, hundreds of fish. The masses of fish, of course, weren't gently ushered. They had to be dragged. They had to be an active action, for lack of a better word. They were actively dragged. So it is with those who truly come to Jesus. The Father reaches down in His mercy. He picks sinful people up off the ocean floor where they are dead. He illuminates them to the wonder and majesty of Jesus Christ and they are born Again, this is not something that we initiate, nor is this something that we in our natural state are inclined towards. Our natural inclination because of sin is to resist God. We don't want God. We don't want someone to tell us what to do. We don't want to face our own sin. We just want to go our own way. Something active needs to happen. We need to be dragged before from the Father to the Son. And this supernatural dragging must happen for us to be brought to life. And crucial to this understanding, crucial to this, is to see that no one is ever dragged against their will. No one is ever dragged against their will. In slavery to sin, we are enslaved. Our will is bound. We don't have the freedom to come. So no one is ever dragged against their will because the drawing work of the Father is where He gives us a new heart. He frees our will to finally come to Him, to love Him and desire Him. And all He has to do is show us His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's all He has to do. And it is irresistible. So no one is ever brought against their will to come to Christ Rather, we are drawn to the wonder and majesty of Christ and our hearts are ravished by this because it is what we were made for. The problem was sin. We were held captive by sin. The Father has to unbreak, he has to break those chains and bring us to the wonder and majesty of Christ. In that sense, we are drawn and brought to what we were made for, to worship the risen Christ. This is all God's sovereign work of salvation. That is the first aspect. And that leads us to then the second aspect, which is the great comfort of God's sovereignty over salvation, where we see the assurance that we have. So this is the same verses we've just looked at. We looked at the emphasis of the Father giving a people to the Son. Notice what Jesus says after that. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out in verse 37. So whoever comes to me are those whom the Father gives to me and those whom the Father give to me, I will never cast out. Never. They are the Father's gift to the Son. This is why we could say that the the redeemed people are the love gift from the Father to the Son. A people to redeem and cleanse and call His own. This is what we see in this passage. Jesus is saying, the Father gifts me a people who will come and I'm never going to cast them out. Never. Because the Son loves the Father and so He loves the Father's gift to Him. He cherishes that gift. 
The assurance that we have is that the Son will never look with scorn upon the Father's gift to Him. Never. He loves the Father. They planned that these people would be redeemed and purchased. And so when the Father gives them to Him to cleanse and wash and make new, the Son loves those whom the Father has given. He will never do anything contrary to the Father's will in giving this gift. That's why he says in verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so that there is no question as to the will of the Father, Jesus is even more explicit in verse 39 when he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus says, my whole life and ministry is about doing the Father's will. The Father wills that a people would be given to me and that I wouldn't lose anything. So I'm not going to lose anyone. I'm not going to lose anything. We'll see this even more clear in John chapter 10 when we get to it, several years from now maybe, when we get to the, the passage of the sheep and uh, before the shepherd and Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one. My Father's greater than everyone. What assurance we have. But the assurance that we have, particularly from this passage, is that those who have come to Christ are those whom the Father has drawn to the Son as the gift to the Son, and the Son will never do anything contrary to the Father's will. He will never cast out those whom the Father has given. So the Father sovereignly elects a people from among all of those who rebel against him. It's not like he is electing a people who are better. He is electing a people purely by grace. We are all at the same level of those who have offended God and rebel against him and resist him. And the Father elects a people and graciously brings them to life and gives them to the Son so that the Son may cleanse them with his blood and then cherish them as his very own body, which is why we are known as the body of Christ. The assurance that we have in our salvation is that those who come to the Son are those whom the Father has given specifically for this cleansing work to be part of the Son, to be His body, and the Son will therefore never cast them out. They are the Father's gift. The Son delights in us because of the immense value that has been ascribed to us by the very fact that we have been given by the Father. It's not a value that we possess in and of ourselves. Though, of course, we say all humanity has inherent value and dignity being made in the image of God, the reality is that's been stained and corrupted, and the value that we have as those who have been given by the Father to the Son is a value that is ascribed to us. For example, parents here will know that their children have gifts, uh, like children, um, rather, the children have gifts like teddy bears. Now, Eleora has, a, I don't know how many, a, too many teddy bears in her bed, and a lot of them really are worthless, quite worthless. But she cherishes them because, usually because of the context of which they have been given to her. Maybe someone has given her that bear, like a grandmother or something. It's an ascribed value. So in and of itself, that teddy bear has no value. But because of the context, Eleora, or any child, then ascribes an immense value. The value is given to that person. It's not inherent. So it is with us. We don't have any value. We're worthless. And yet, the Father gives us to the Son, and the Son ascribes a tremendous level of value, an immense level of value to us because the Father has given us to Him. So He will cherish us. He will never cast us out. 
This is the assurance that we have. Not only the value that we see in the Father giving the Son, but of course, the value because of the cost that was paid, the price that was paid to redeem this gift. The Father had given a gift, but the only way for the Son to get that was for Him to go to His death, to suffer an excruciating death that He might cleanse us and wash us and make us His very own. So what assurance we can have, the value ascribed to us, the cost that was paid. Now, a question to be asked now as we think of the sovereignty of God and the assurance we can have is, of course, how do you know that the Father has given you to the Son? How do you know? And the simple answer is, you look to the Son and believe. You trust in the Son. The call goes out to everyone And the responsibility lies upon all to look to the Son and believe. Though salvation is God's sovereign work, the responsibility remains entirely upon the individual to turn to Christ and be saved. So one side of the coin, one side of the coin of salvation is that no one comes unless they are drawn by the Father. The other side of that very same coin is that all who hear must come. They must come. They must respond. They must respond in faith. They must trust in the Son. And those who respond in faith toward the word of Christ to look to him and be saved can have great assurance that the Father has worked his miraculous work within them. We, as those who have been redeemed, put the call out to everyone. The gospel call goes out to everyone. Everyone must hear and turn to the Son Those whom the Father has given to the Son will. And that's the assurance that we can have evangelistically as we go out. This is why Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Or when God says, when Paul is struggling in Acts around Macedonia, and God says to him, keep going, for I have many people in this city. You can't see them now, but I have many people in this city. You continue proclaiming the word of Christ. Those whom I have given to the Son will come. They will. Now, after seeing the sovereignty of God in salvation and the assurance in our passage from verse 41 onwards, we see the Jews grumbling about him. So we see the Jews responding in a way that is pretty consistent with what we've seen uh, throughout the Old Testament of the Jews grumbling, even thinking about the underlying, the undergirding themes of this, of bread given in the wilderness from Israel as they're taken out of Egypt. And what are they doing in that context as bread is coming down from heaven? They're grumbling. I think it's quite intentional that John is wanting us to see this, that not much has changed. There are still God's people who are grumbling as Jesus is saying, I am the bread from heaven. Now, Here is where we see the third aspect of the inner workings of God's salvation. We see the wisdom and power of God in salvation. So the Jews simply cannot believe that this Jesus is heaven sent. They say in verse 42, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know. They're saying this can't be the Messiah. We saw him grow up. We we, we lived in the same area. This is just the carpenter's son. He can't be the Messiah. Now, here is where we see the wisdom and power of God, and we see the wisdom and power of God in the perceived foolishness 
of God's plan of redemption. I mean, look at this. The Jews are saying, this Jesus, we saw him. We knew him as a child. Now he's claiming to be the Messiah? This is crazy. The Jews consider this to be foolish to believe that Jesus is divinely appointed. Now, Paul, the apostle, addresses a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians, where he writes, the word of the cross is folly, or the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of Jesus of Nazareth as God among us, as God in the flesh, coming to pay the price for our sin is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's utter foolishness. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. He is saying it pleases God to secure redemption the way he has because it's not appealing to anyone in their sinful state. It's not appealing to any intellect that someone has. It's not appealing to just a particular people. What appeals to our natural sinful minds is to have a savior who is going to give us all of our physical needs and desires right now. What appealed to the minds of the Jews at the time was that God was going to send a Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman government and give them the kingdom that they wanted there and then. Sort of a puppet master. But a savior like Jesus who comes and washes people's feet and then suffers an excruciating death and all of his followers leave him? That seems like foolishness. Except to those who are being saved. To those whom God has sovereignly brought to life, all of a sudden we who have known Jesus Christ, we see the wisdom and power of God in salvation and we see the utter foolishness in a worldly method of salvation. We see this contrast. Though the world looks at God's plan of redemption as foolishness, we see the wisdom of it and we see the world's means of their own salvation as utter foolishness. But God has made those who are perishing, God has made it seem, appear foolish. So we see, we see that freedom would not come about by a Messiah conquering a physical government, overthrowing the Romans. Rather, we see freedom coming by a Messiah who conquers sin by nailing it to the cross. And in the gospel, we see that freedom never comes about by this worldly mantra of following your own hearts and exploring every thought that comes to your minds. Rather, we see that freedom comes about by following a savior and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. That's where freedom comes. In the message of the cross, we see that the greatest display of power was not so much in a dominant physical victory, but in a crucified suffering servant. That's where we see the greatest display of power. As God's own son is hung on the cross to pay the price for our sin. What seemed like a defeat was actually a cosmic victory, the greatest display of power the world has ever seen. We also see that our right standing with God 
was never going to come about through our ability to meet God's standards. As much as everyone in this world likes to think that there's something within them that God might be pleased by, rather our right standing with God was always going to come through Christ's ability to meet God's standard and then gift that perfect record to us. The way of the cross is foolishness. The way of the cross is foolishness to think that a people would dedicate their lives to following a man who was claimed to have died 2,000 years ago. And even then, all of his followers disappeared. But then all of a sudden, his followers began to multiply and multiply, mostly through suffering and dying and persecution. And we, 2,000 years later, speaking a language that didn't even exist at the time, are dedicating our lives to following this man who we believe to be God. That seems foolishness. And yet, it is the power of God to salvation and God is pleased to use those means to demonstrate that it is his power at work not the power of man not the power of any worldly wisdom so the Jews here believe it is foolish to think that Jesus of Nazareth is someone who could be divinely appointed and people today continue to believe that the message of Christ is foolishness and yet All across the globe, there are still people today who are being brought to life as the message of Christ crucified is being proclaimed. And though it may seem foolish to those who are perishing, to those who are being saved, this is the wisdom and power of God. And this is precisely why the church must never employ worldly wisdom in their strategies, so to speak, Because you don't see the wisdom and power of God in that. You see a worldly wisdom. It's eluded. Just like Paul says, I do not want to employ any worldly wisdom. I proclaim Christ crucified, lest I empty the cross of its power. The power of the cross is seen when people like you and me, wretched sinners, all of a sudden hear the message of a crucified Savior, and we, our hearts are gripped by that, and we long to serve Him for the rest of our lives. There is where we see the power of God in salvation. So we see the wisdom and power of God. Fourthly, we see the nearness of God in salvation. So from verses 45 to 46... Here is where Jesus says, after the drawing, he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Then it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So this is Jesus explaining what this drawing is for. The people whom he will draw the people who the Father will draw to the Son will all be taught by God. They will be drawn to the Son to fulfill this hope that is woven all throughout the Old Testament where God's people would finally walk in God's ways. This is the point of it. God's people are taught to follow Him so that they would live according to what He has prescribed. This is talking about the nearness of God to his people as he actually causes them to walk faithfully, as he causes them to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. Now let's look at this passage here that Jesus quotes from. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54, where he says, and they will all be taught by God. Now in Isaiah 54, we have wonderful themes of restoration, beautiful themes of God 
restoring his people. There are themes of deep compassion toward a helpless people. So in Isaiah 54 verse 6, God's people are described as a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. This is how God is describing Israel at the time. They were his wife. They were meant to be in in a marriage with him, but they had committed adultery. They had whored themselves out to the world. And God, in a sense, gave them their certificate of divorce, we read. And so they are described as a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. And this is because of their own rebellion against God, where they committed adultery by giving themselves to other gods. But then even in this, there is hope. There is beautiful hope. So in this passage, God says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. It is in this context of restoration to a broken people that God gives the promise of all being taught by God. This is what Jesus is talking about. So it's in this context of restoration, of God restoring his people, bringing them back in with deep compassion that the promise is then given and all will be taught by God. And Jesus says, this is happening now. The Father is drawing people to the Son so that restoration would happen, just as Israel was described as a wife, deserted, but then brought back, so we as the church become the bride of Christ, where we are nourished and cherished by our groom. We are taught by him. He teaches us all things by his promised spirit. In John 14, where we read, Jesus says, I will send you the spirit who will teach you all things. Now, the reason why this demonstrates the nearness of God is because this restoration comes by God removing all barriers of access to him. He removes all barriers of access to him. See, because of God's burning holiness, his presence and his teaching always had to be a mediated teaching. It had to be mediated by the priests. The priests were there to mediate the teaching of God to the people And then the people had to be mediated toward God. So the sacrifices came through the priests. So in that sense, he was not so near to his people to teach them himself. It was a mediated teaching. But God is saying in Isaiah 54, there is coming a time where I will teach them personally, where the barrier will be taken down. And we see the fulfillment of this in Christ as he then becomes the mediator between us as God. As he bridges that gap, that great chasm between God and man, where the perfect God-man becomes the mediator. So we no longer need priests to mediate because we are the priesthood. That's why the Bible gives us that identity. We no longer need priests to mediate us and God because we are a royal priesthood where we boldly approach God's throne, where we boldly approach his presence because we are renewed and restored people. God is near to us now as we are taught by his spirit to walk faithfully before him. So I hope you see this is demonstrating the nearness of God in salvation, that this promise of all being taught by God is secured as the barrier is brought down. Now, finally, 
Number five, the satisfaction of God and salvation. So here's where we'll finish. We've seen the sovereignty of God. We've seen the assurance of God and salvation. We've seen the wisdom and power of God. Then the nearness that he has broken down the barrier. We have access to God as renewed and restored people. And finally, the satisfaction of God in salvation. So this is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says this both in verse 35 and then verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says the same thing in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. I am living bread from heaven that if anyone eats, he will live forever. This is talking about this sense of satisfaction. Whoever comes to me will never hunger nor thirst. Your fathers, they ate, they're, they're left wanting. They died. They ate matter in the wilderness and they died. If you come to me as the living bread, you are satisfied. Now, it's not saying that we will never have any want again, but it's talking about that deep desire for communion, that we all have that deep desire for communion with our maker because eternity, as it says in Ecclesiastes, has been placed into the hearts of men. We all long to worship a supreme being and we are all left wanting when we feel that separation. Coming to Jesus Christ is finally dealing with that great need, that great want, that sin has created within us that deep separation within us where we are cut off from a maker, from our maker. Those who come to Christ as the bread of life finally experience the satisfaction that our hearts have always longed for. So Jesus says, your fathers ate bread and they died. They died. They were left wanting. It was just physical bread. It can't satisfy your deep need for communion with God that will only ever come through me as the living bread. Now, the background of this is rooted again in Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, just a chapter after Isaiah 54 that we just looked at. You might remember this famous passage where God through Isaiah is speaking to his people and he's saying, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In simple terms, why do you attempt to fill yourselves with things that do not satisfy? Why do you fill your broken cup with worldly water that just seeps through the cracks? This was the issue of people in Isaiah's day. Why do you not come to me, Yahweh, as the one who can satisfy? You must come to me. And he's saying, come to me and buy these things without price because you would never have enough money for this. It's going to cost you everything, but you don't have that. Come and buy wine. Come and buy bread without price. Why are you spending your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That was the issue for them today. It's the issue for, that was the issue for them 3,000 years ago. It's the issue for people coming to Jesus about 2,000 years ago. And it remains the issue for people today. People looking for temporary solutions to eternal problems. People filling their lives with cheap entertainment and novelties when they were made to worship an almighty 
God. There is no worldly substitute to satisfy our deepest longings to direct our passions toward a supreme God. It's like the famous C.S. Lewis quote where he said, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. So there's nothing in this world that can satisfy. The logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. Jesus is calling us to this other world, which is him. He is where our desires are to be directed. He is the satisfaction of our deepest longing for companionship and worship of a supreme God. It's like Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their perfect rest in God. This is what you were made for. And in this marvelous work of salvation that we get this beautiful behind the scenes look at, we get to turn to the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. This is the, the primary uh, purpose, the centerpiece of this passage is to look to Jesus as the bread of life, to remind yourself that him and only in him is satisfaction. The world will never, the world will only ever offer a distasteful substitute that Christ alone can give. 